We got the hang of it. <laughs> that is a wonderful little song that captures the, the first portion of Psalm 5. That's uh, a song that can stick in your heart and your mind even as you go to God in prayer in the morning. So thank you for that. Dale Ralph Davis, in his insightful comments on Psalm 5, says, I have a suspicion that in the Holy Spirit's filing cabinet, there is a folder marked Instruction in Prayer, and inside, among others, is a copy of Psalm 5. In this psalm, David teaches us how to pray when we are in dangerous and lousy circumstances. In his own prayer, he models prayer for us and provides us with a prayer tutorial so that as he himself prays, he seems to leave behind directions for our prayers. I think he's right. Maybe not the part about the Holy Spirit having a filing cabinet, but you understand his point. He's saying to us that this is a portion of Scripture that can teach us much about prayer. And it certainly can. And I think Psalm 5 could very well be David's continuing prayer request before God in light of Absalom's pursuit. Alec Motier, a fine commentator on the Old Testament and particularly the Psalms, Agrees, He says, Psalm 5 offers no indication of time or place, but it makes sense if it is viewed as belonging to the flight uh, of a, uh, belonging to the fight of another day and the danger that David experienced. I, I agree. The whole of Psalm 5 is one long prayer from David, and as such, it should serve as a tremendous encouragement to you and to me. I would begin tonight by asking how many of you are completely, totally, and sufficiently satisfied with your prayer life? Raise your hand. Well, I'm not either. And I don't think anybody is. In fact, the older I get and the saints who are even older than I am, when I often ask them the question, especially those who are very old in the Lord, are you satisfied with your prayer life? And if it's a lady, she might very well say something like this, well, no, honey, of course not. Because nobody seems to be quite satisfied that they either pray enough or that they pray enough biblical prayers or that they're crying out to God sufficiently enough or that they understand God well enough, or that they are trying to come to grips with their life circumstances, or they are attempting to know God in a more greater and real way so as to pray more intelligently to Him. Whatever the case may be, none of us, myself included, maybe at the top of the list, are satisfied at all with our prayer life. Proverbs 15.8 says in the New American Standard Bible, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. 
You want to delight God? A delight to His heart? Well, then learn how to pray like David. Like David in the Psalms. Or like Jesus. Or even learn from Jesus how to go to the Father. And what to do. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, the scripture says, from the lips of Jesus himself, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? That's really what David is doing here. He's asking God. He's he's seeking God. He's knocking on heaven's doors. And he's asking God to give him relief. Sam Storms, in a wonderful little devotional called More Precious Than Gold, can write about Psalm 5 with these words. Although God is spirit, if he had a face, he would display one of two looks when people pray. The text of Psalm 5 suggests that God frowns in disgust when the wicked hypocritically try to manipulate him with their sacrifices. But he has a beaming, glowing smile of indescribable delight whenever his children pray. Why? It certainly isn't because he learns something from them of which he had been previously unaware. Rather, God smiles when we pray because the God of the Bible, quoting now John Piper, is the kind of God who delights most deeply not in making demands, but in meeting needs. That's our God. Prayer is His delight because prayer shows the reaches of our poverty and the riches of His grace. Prayer is that wonderful transaction where the wealth of God's glory is magnified and the wants of our soul are satisfied. Prayer. Listen to David's prayer. The whole psalm is a prayer request from David. Listen to it. Psalm 5. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Isn't that what we just sang? Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. 
Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now as I've studied Psalm 5, I see four different major points that come through this psalm. Four major signposts that are given to us in this psalm. And the first one is this, number one. And I'm going to put it in the form of a prayer because the entirety of this psalm, as I've said, is a prayer. So here is this first constituent element of David's prayer. Yahweh, please hear my earnest prayer. That's simple, right? Yahweh, please hear my earnest prayer. And I think because we're talking about earnest prayer, we should probably put an exclamation point at the end of that first outline point, right? Lord, hear my prayer. Why do I say that? Well, look at those first three verses of Psalm 5. I want you to notice, first of all, all the verbs that David uses in these first three verses. Notice what he says here. Give ear, verse 1. Consider my groaning, verse 1. Give attention, verse 2. To you do I pray, verse 2. And then verse 3. I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch, or watch eagerly. See all those verbs? David's involved in this prayer. This is an active man with a flourishing prayer life. Notice when he says, give ear. You know what that means? To listen closely. Now, someone might hear that and say to themselves, that almost sounds blasphemous. I mean, you're a sinful man as King David was. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, he had clay feet. He was a sinful man. He knew it. He knew the Lord knew it. But he also had such a relationship with the Lord that he could stand even as a sinful man and say to the Lord himself, to Yahweh God, listen closely to me. It's not as though he's making a demand of God in God's presence, God's holy presence. It's really actually the preparedness of his heart and the eagerness of his words. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Listen to me. You say, what's the backdrop? He's running for his life. That's what he's doing. He's running for his life. He's got people all around him who are expecting him to lead his people back to the throne, back to Jerusalem back to the Mount of Olives, back to the place where David the king, the one who has been called by God to be the king of Israel, to actually be the king of Israel. 
not to be out in the wilderness somewhere, not to be in a hole trying to get away from his son Absalom, but that's where he finds himself. Finds himself in very dire circumstances. And when you and I find ourselves in dire circumstances, maybe not because we're quite literally running away from our enemies, but we have enemies of the plans and purposes that we want the Lord to do in and through our lives. And when it seems like those things are being thwarted, when it seems like we've got enemies that are too numerous to mention, we should do the same thing. Give give ear to my words, O Lord. Listen to me. Listen to my words very closely. And then he says, consider my groaning. Consider my groaning. Groaning can also be translated as sighing. And it has the idea in the Hebrew text of of almost a, a hushed, inaudible voice. A voice that can just barely be heard which is so fascinating to me because verse 2 says, give attention to the sound of my cry. You know what David is doing? He's talking about the highs and lows of his experience. He's talking about his prayer life by the shouting from the housetops, Lord, deliver me. Absalom is not the rightful heir to the throne because he is not worthy. Because he is a schemer, he's a deceitful man, and even though he's my son, and even though I love him, and you remember in 2 Samuel, even when Absalom was dead at the hands of those who were protecting David, David said, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Of course he loved him, but he also knew that if Absalom had half an opportunity, David would be dead. Because he knows that and because he knows he's the leader of God's people and because he's attempting with all of his heart to trust God in the dire circumstances of his life, whether we're talking about almost an inaudible sound that you can barely hear, David's heart is, God, help me. Give me strength. I need you. To the sound of a huge cry of his heart. Give attention. Pay attention. I'm crying out loud for you, God. Have you ever been in that place? Are you crying out to God? I've had experiences in my life where through fasting and prayer, I've just seemingly thrown my heart right out of my chest onto the table in my prayer life to God, not knowing what's going to happen to that heart. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to lead. I I don't know how to do the right thing. Oh, I know what the Bible says, but I'm so vexed. My soul is so anguished that I don't know what to do. And so what you do when you don't know what to do is you ask God to, to lend His ear to your cry whether it's the barely inaudible voice where you can't even muster the words, where it's like the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 who is actually speaking for us with groanings that are too deep for words as He intercedes for us. Or it's this this 
calling out to God, this crying out to God, I need you, I need you, help me, Lord. You may not be physically being pursued by someone who wants to run a sword through you, but you and I have had the experience, I know you have, where we haven't seemingly known where to turn, and we have either with the hushed tone of our prayer request or the crying of our tears to God. Give me your heart, Lord. And that's what's going on here with David. And he says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. This is the King of Israel calling out to his King, his God, the one who created him. And he says, for to you do I pray. And that particular word, pray, that's listed there in your English Bible, it's variously translated, but it means this, to talk to God. To talk to God. That's what prayer is, talking to God. It can be on your knees. It could be standing up. It could be with your eyes open or your eyes closed. It could be with your hands raised. It can be with your arms down. It can be with your heart happy or your heart very sad. In whatever position your body may be in and in whatever condition your soul may be in, pray. For to you do I pray. And then he says in verse 3, O Lord, See that capital L-O-R-D, O Yahweh, the divine name, O Yahweh, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and probably best eagerly watch. And when you see in verse 3 twice the repetition there, in the morning, in the morning, That's significant because what David is saying in the Hebrew text is this is what I do regularly. In the morning, I come to you. In the morning, I come to you. In the morning, I come to you. It's screaming to us to say, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? Do you remember Psalm 3? That was a psalm in which David was trying to get to sleep. And in Psalm 3, 5, he says, I laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And he woke up in the morning with a robust heart, even though he had not yet been delivered. And Psalm 4, that's joy in the night. That's when David is laying on his bed and he's thinking about all of the issues before him, none the least of which is his trying to get away from his ravenous son who wants to kill him. And here in Psalm 5, he says, In the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice. Or maybe could be translated... I bring my request. In the morning, I bring my request for you. And I eagerly watch. 
What makes up your morning? I mean, when you get up in the morning, what's the first thing on your mind? Do you think about the Lord? Do you think about the fact that the very next breath you take is a gift? Do you think of all of the activities of the day? Well, if you're like me, it's all of the above. You're thinking about your life. You're thinking about your family. You're thinking about your duties. You're thinking about your trials. You're thinking about so many things. And that's so normal. It's so natural to be caught up in all of the things that surround us, all of the things that we care about, all of the things that we want to accomplish, all of the things that we want to see occur that are good and right and righteous. Well, if that's the case with you as it is with me, then to whom should we go for all of those things? We should go to the Lord in the morning, repetitiously, every morning. In the morning, David's confidence, you hear my voice. And I prepare, whether it's his his sacrifice like they did in ancient Israel, they prepared an actual sacrifice, Or if he's saying, I'm laying my request out before you, either way, he says, I am eagerly waiting for your answer. I read this week about George Mueller, who said in one of his devotionals as he kept his journal, I have been beseeching God for the salvation of some friends, and I have prayed every single day for some of them and he said and I'm now recording that this is the 19th year and 6th month of such a prayer every day you know if you have unsaved friends especially an unsaved spouse an unsaved child that's nothing to you right it could very well be that some of you have been praying for the salvation of someone that you love for years and years and years. And we don't know what God's answer to that is, do we? But as I've said before to you, as Spurgeon said, prayer is that slender nerve that moves the hand of omnipotence. Trust God. Pray to Him, especially in the morning. Ask Him to grant you your prayers according to to his will and watch eagerly John Fesco writing about David's prayer life in Psalm 5 says this note how many times David uses the pronoun my we see that David has an intensely personal relationship with the Lord his relationship is neither characterized by great emotional distance nor bound exclusively in strict formality David utters his personal cry to the creator of the heavens and earth as his God, my God. David's dependence upon his God and king is especially evident in verse 3. He writes that he would pray to the Lord in the morning, which is a part of Israel's morning sacrifice ritual. We can observe a pattern in David's life that has been unfolding in Psalms 3 and 4, one that we would probably not find in the lives of many Christians. 
In Psalm 3.5, David told us that he prayed to the Lord upon waking from his sleep and gave thanks that the Lord had protected him. In Psalm 4.4, David told us that he would pray before he went to sleep that the Lord would keep him from anger. And here again in verse 3 of Psalm 5, he tells us that he cried out to the Lord in the morning. His life exhibits a continual pattern of morning and evening prayer. And then he finishes with this, the degree to which we rely upon Christ is likely reflected in the way in which we pray to him. It's a, it's a spiritual barometer, isn't it? And if you ask me what's easier, at least from my experience, to read the Bible or pray, it is so much easier to read the Bible. I'm not sure I know why that is all the time, but I think the reason it's hard to pray as we know we ought, even more difficult than reading our Bibles, is because when we pray to God, we are vulnerable before Him. We're we're opening our lives up to Him, and we're talking to Him, and we're asking Him questions, and we're pleading for His answers, and we know when we do, we're open and laid bare before Him. And that's, I think, what characterizes David right here. Yahweh, please Please, please hear my prayers. Number two. Number two. Yahweh, please deal with the wicked as only you can. Yahweh, please, please deal with the wicked as only you can. There are two places where I see this in Psalm 5. Look at verses 4 through 6. Notice that little word for there, the first word in our ESV Bibles of verse 4. For, or to explain why David is crying out to God, asking for God's ear, why he is sounding the cry of his heart to his king and his God, why in the morning he's eagerly watching for the answer from God to his prayers. It is for this reason, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. He goes not directly to the wicked and what they're doing, but he actually goes to the character of God and describes the character of God as God himself is compared to the wicked. Notice that. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Evil cannot be in your presence. That's the way you might be able to say this. You're this kind of God. You're a God who hears my prayers. You're a God who considers my groanings. You're a God who gives attention to the sound of my cry. You're a God who I can pray to. And in the morning, I'm confident that you will hear my voice I will prepare my request, I'll lay it before you, and I'm going to eagerly watch because I believe that you have given me your very righteousness. Not like those who are wicked. For those wicked people, for those evil people, you don't delight in that at all. Evil can't even be in your presence. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, You hate all evildoers. 
You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Notice all of the characteristic attributes of the unrighteous. Wickedness, verse 4. Evil, verse 4. Boastful, verse 5. Evildoers, verse 5. Liars, verse 6. Bloodthirsty, verse 6. Deceitful, verse 6. Now that is a veritable rogues gallery, isn't it? That's not a pretty sight at all. And what David, I think, is doing is he's comparing himself and knowing that he can't stand righteous before God on his own, but he appeals to God's own character and God's own righteousness as one who will deal with those who are at David's heels. They are wicked, evil, boastful, the doers of evil, speaking lies, bloodthirsty, and deceitful. And David says, Lord, deal with them. Deal with them as only you can. And he goes and does the same thing in verses 9 and 10. Look at it. He says, for, this is again an explanatory idea, for there is no truth in their mouth, these wicked people who are after me, their inmost self is destruction, they don't love you, they're all about themselves, they're all about destroying me, they're all about destroying you, God, if they could, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue, make them bear their guilt, O God, let them fall by their own counsels, because of the abundance of their transgressions, Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now, does that not also sound to you like Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In every one of these psalms, Psalm 1, the wicked, Psalm 2, those who rise against God and His anointing, uh, His anointed, Psalm 3, those who are rising against me, Psalm 3, 1 says, those who are saying of David's soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Verse 7 of Psalm 3, my enemies, the wicked, Psalm 4, those who love vain words, Psalm 4.2. Those who seek after lies, Psalm 4.2. This is reality. I mean, we don't have these kinds of battles, by and large. But there are other battles that we face. Wickedness. Most of the time, it's what we face probably just by our remaining sin. Right? We may not have somebody nipping at our heels... But we certainly have sin in general in the world and we have our own attitudes and we do have at times people who sin against us. And so this is, this is David asking for God to display his character against those who not only are hating David, but hating God himself. Because every one of those attributes that are listed there in verses 4 through 6 and in verses 9 and 10, they're not God's attributes. They have nothing to do with God. God 
can't even allow this evil to be in his presence. These evildoers, these boastful liars, these bloodthirsty, deceitful men, these ones who have no truth in their mouth, who are nothing but destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue, they have nothing to do with God at all. And David says, Lord, your character is pristine, perfect, sinless. They shouldn't even be standing anywhere near the righteous. So deal with them. Do what you must in only the way that you can. By your means. By the way, that verses 9 and 10, doesn't that sound to you a lot like Romans 3? Romans 3, their throat is an open grave. Verse 13, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So whether you're talking about the Old Testament or you're talking about the New, we will always and forever until God vanquishes all his foes. We will have to deal with those who are evil and wicked in our world. We'll have to deal with them. We have to put up with it. We have to be patient. And you know what David says? We have to do more than that. We have to pray. We have to pray. That's why I have at times called us to pray as a church. When we had that Orlando shooting, we called ourselves to prayer, right? On Sunday night, we called ourselves to prayer. We gathered together in small circles and we prayed. We prayed for our country. We prayed for those who were devastated as a result. We prayed for families. We prayed for righteousness. And that's what David is saying here. Lord, please, will you not do this for your own character's sake? That's what he's saying. Lord, deal with them as only you can. You say, well, How should we deal with evildoers, even those who come against us? Well, Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but get thought, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how we should deal with it. In the New Covenant perspective, this is, this is what we do. This is how we respond. And unless God were to tell us to take vengeance on His behalf, then we pray and we bless God and we're patient and we ask God to do whatever He's going to do in His way. Number three, number three, Yahweh, please continually shower me with your loyal love and always lead me in your righteous path. Yahweh, please 
continually shower me with your loyal love and always lead me in your righteous path. Where do I see that in the text? Verses 7 and 8. But I, David says, and that's put there for emphasis, but I, but I for myself through the abundance of your hesed, your loyal love, your steadfast love. That that particular Hebrew term hesed is so rich in the Old Testament that there's not even one simple way you can describe that one word. Loyal love, steadfast love, covenant-keeping love, the blessing of God, the loyal love of God, that which God bestows on those to whom he bestows that love. And, and David says, here's what I'm going to do. As you deal with the wicked as only you can, here's what I'm going to do in response. I'm going to worship. This, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to worship through the abundance of your covenant-keeping love, your steadfast love, your loyal love. I will enter your house. I'll worship. Now that is a man who could, even as king, deal out retribution if he thought he ought to do so. Now God may have called him to go out at times. He was a man of blood. He did exact vengeance on God's behalf. And there may have been times, and there certainly were in Israel's history, in which they did things that God had commanded them not to do, and God requited them for what they had done. But instead of David trying to go and find Absalom himself and do his own dirty work in doing what he thought he must have done in order to save himself, he's rather relying on God. He's asking God for help. He's asking God for the, the answer. Do you remember when Saul was chasing David? And when there were those times when David could have killed Saul? Do you remember one time in the cave when Saul was relieving himself? And David had the opportunity and even sliced off a bit of his robe and later said to Saul, I could have done so. But I didn't want to touch the Lord's what? Anointed. There's something in David that understands that he's only going to do what God calls him to do, even in the taking of vengeance. And so what does he do instead of exacting vengeance upon all of his enemies? He goes to the house of God to worship. He says in the latter part of verse 7, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of of you. What's what's fear? Is it cringing in God's presence? No, not in that sense. If he's our heavenly father, do you know what fear is? Fear is a a holy awe of who God is in his character and perfections. And it's also a healthy dread because he's God. Because he is the almighty one. And so there's a balanced nuance between the holy awe 
of an infinitely holy God, but also a very healthy dread of the person of God because he is almighty. And David understands that balance. And he says, instead of me dealing with my enemies, I'm going to ask you to do it in only the way that you can. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to your house for worship. And when I go to that house, here's my posture. I'm going to be in humble adoration. I will bow down toward your holy temple and I will express a holy awe and a healthy dread of your character. This is David's disposition. And what he's really saying is, remember, this is a prayer. Every sentence in Psalm 5 is a prayer. And he says, in essence, Yahweh, please continually shower me with your loyal love. And then this, verse 8, and lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Shower me continually with your loyal love and lead me in your righteous path. I want to know the right path. I want to know what I should do. I want to know when I veer off the path. I want you to help me. I want you to correct me. I want you to be for me the one who is always hemming me in so that I stay on the right path. Do you remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Quote it for me. Trust in the Lord. With all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will what? And He will make your paths straight. Do you know that the next verse says something else? Right after it says, trust the Lord, lean not on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If David says in Psalm 5, I want a straight path. I don't want to lean on my own understanding. I want to trust you. I don't want to trust myself. I don't want to be wise in my own eyes. I want to fear you and I want to turn away from evil because I trust you. I trust that you will give me what I need. And that's a straight way. Because in your righteousness, you'll deal with my enemies and you'll put me on a righteous path. You see what David is doing? He's, he may even be discipling some of the mighty men. He may be even telling some of the mighty men, men, we don't have to try to destroy all of our enemies at once. Let's trust the Lord. Let's not be wise in our own eyes. Let's stay on the straight and narrow. Let's go on the path where righteousness dwells. And let's trust the Lord with the result. I want you, Lord, to keep your loyal love upon me, your covenant-keeping love, And I want you to lead me on the right path, the path of righteousness, the right way. And when you do, number four, this will happen. Yahweh, please continually give me your protection and blessed favor. This is David's prayer. Yahweh, please continually give me 
your protection and blessed favor. Verses 11 and 12. But in contrast to the rebellious, in contrast to those who are the transgressor, transgression, excuse me, transgressors, to those who are guilty, to those who have that open grave for a throat, to those who have that flattering, deceiving tongue, to those who don't speak the truth, to those whose very core is destruction itself, they will be dealt with as only you can. But let all who take refuge in you do what? Rejoice. Rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Who's the them? Those who take refuge. And spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult, rejoice, worship, praise you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Oh, this is the this is the climax. This is the series of exclamation points. This is David saying, look, when all is said and done, when you and I are morning after morning after morning praying to the Lord, asking Him to give you His ear, the sound of our cry to our King and our God, praying to Him, expecting an answer, eagerly watching, dealing with the wicked, knowing that He's going to extend His loyal love to us forever and ever, and He's going to lead us to the right path. I don't have to worry about those things I can't control. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but would it not seem plausible to you that those who struggle with their prayer life might also be worry warts? Might it be true? I think so. Those who worry are anxious, fearful, doubting, vexed, concerned, troubled. They often short-circuit their prayer life because they're not rejoicing in the loyal love and the righteous path of their Heavenly Father. And that's why He says, Let all who take refuge in you Rejoice. Notice the evocative words. Rejoice. Joy. Ever sing for joy. May exult in you. It just, it just springs up in the heart of a Christian. I'm not going to be a worry ward. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm going to take my request to the Lord. I'm not going to be fearful. I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be worried. I'm going to take my request before the Lord. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to dwell on the things that I know are right and honorable and of good reputation. I'm going to dwell on those things. And as a result of knowing that my focus has to be on the straight path because of the loyal love of my Heavenly Father, I will, as a result, take refuge in my God and rejoice as a result of it. I'm going to sing for joy because God is going to spread His protection over me. God's going to protect me. That's that's David's faith talking there, right? He's in a ditch somewhere. 
He's in a cave. And yet, he says, I'm going to take refuge in you by faith and will rejoice and ever sing for joy. And your protection is spread over all those whom you loyally love and those who love your name. They're going to rejoice in you. They're going to exult in you, God. And you're going to bless the righteous, O Lord. And you're going to cover him with favor as with a shield. And this, this shield that he's talking about in the Hebrew text, it's a full shield. It's a full body shield against my enemies, against those who don't love Yahweh. You know, when I see this rejoicing and singing for joy, does that not evoke in the Christian's mind Ephesians chapter 5? being filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. And if you are Spirit-controlled, what, what does it say in Ephesians 5? What will you do? You'll sing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's what you do when you're Spirit-controlled. You remember when David sinned against the Lord and when he confessed, he said, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, from my kingship, from my rule, from my authority. And when someone is walking in sin and they are not pleasing the Lord, one of the attributes that often is the case with such a one is they stop singing. They stop singing. And they worry. And sometimes they gloat. And they boast. And they sin. Yet the one who is filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit of God, they rejoice. They ever sing for joy. Now, I know sometimes when you come, whether it's on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, and maybe everything isn't as grand as you and I want it to be in our life, but if you're like me, when you walk out of this place, you can honestly say, at least I hope you can, I rejoice in my God. I've been worshiping with the saints. I love the Lord, and I needed this. I needed this. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover me with a full body shield. You want protection? (laughs) Do you want a shielding favor? then rejoice in the Lord. That's not something you just conjure up on your own and you have to crank it up and you have to sort of do a a self-motivating idea of saying, uh, the little train that could, I will, I will, I will, I will. No. It's really as simple as this. I will confess my sins to the Lord. I will seek to be right and righteous and I will ask Him to protect me and shield me from harm and I will rejoice in His blessed goodness. That's what we talk about. That's what we sing about. That's who we are. And when we have those kinds of attitudes, it can flow right out of Sunday into the blahs of Monday. And we can, when we're trying to parent all of those rebellious children, and we can, when we see that work isn't going as we would otherwise intend, And when we are frustrated with those in our family and extended family, or when those who are my friends or so I thought 
are not treating me as I should be treated, whatever the case, financial worry, physical dereliction of our desire for all good health and kindness to us, when it doesn't come, what do you do? What do you do? This is what David does. And I suspect you'd probably say like me, he's in a world of hurt that's far worse than we are. And look at what he's doing. He's rejoicing. He's singing for joy. The spread of protection over those who love God's name. Covering them with favor as with a shield. So, I ask as we close, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Convicting and yet hopeful. Because tomorrow in the morning, I will lift my request before him and eagerly watch. Let's pray. Yes, Lord. In the morning, we're going to bring our request to you and eagerly watch We're going to wait in expectation to see if our prayers will line up with your will. To see whether or not our desires are your desires. And to give us hope. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is so true that we are feeble and frail We are like dust. And yet you cover us with favor as with a shield. And you bless the righteous. We may not always see the blessing. We may not always perceive the good that is being done to us by your good hand. But we want to be discerning as to how to respond even to the wicked around us. And we want to be able to rejoice, to ever sing for joy, to exult in you because of your protecting power. Thank you for loyally loving us for the sake of Jesus Christ the one who gave his life for us and for the Holy Spirit controlling us and allowing us to be controlled by him so that we do sing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and we are making melody in our hearts to the Lord And when we sing, we may not sing on key. And when we attempt to praise you, it may not be exactly the way the next person is doing it. But it's our feeble attempt to thank you for that covenant-keeping love and for that righteous, straight path. Because we have trusted in you 
We haven't leaned on our own understanding. We don't want to be wise in our own eyes. We want to fear you. And like David, we want to come into your very presence to worship. And we want to bow down at your holiness. And we want to pray. And we pray sometimes with inaudible words because the pain is so acute. And we want to pray at times where we're throwing with loud voice our cries unto You. And we're asking You to give attention to us. Consider our groaning. And Father, as we praise You yet again, as we close now our service, may David continue as the others who have written these wonderful songs of Israel encourage our hearts as we study them together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.